Howdy, everyone. It's good to see all of you here. These bright lights in my face, I can't actually see all of you here, but I know there were people up there when I came down here, and I don't think you've all left the room. So anyway, it's very good to, to have everyone here for this Sabbath. I pray it started off well for you, restful and profitable. We are fasting next weekend. If it's news for you today, you're like, what? But read the letter. That's a good thing. Uh, we're fasting next Sabbath, and... Fasting is a time of self-examination. We reflect, we think back, look through our lives, among the other things we do, uh, seeking some humility and seeking to understand ourselves better. And it's my hope that today's topic will help uh, all of us, some of us more perhaps than others, but all of us, uh, to give us at least something to chew on, something to reflect on. I'm giving today's sermon mainly for two reasons. One is because Dr. Meredith told me to. Uh, we had executive lunch about a week and a half ago or so, and I can't remember who brought the topic up first. Uh, my, I think it might have been uh, Mr. Amen, I'm not sure, but Mr. Ames uh, joined in. Mr. Rod McNair had things to say, and we're all talking, and Dr. Meredith had a lot to say about it. Uh, and then he, he looked at me during the meeting and said, Wally, you could give a sermon on that. And when... Dr. Mayer looks at you and says, you give a sermon on that, you say, yeah, I'm going to give a sermon on that. You know, that's uh, how that works. But it's also something that, frankly, has been on my mind for a long time. Uh, and I, I, I felt very grateful uh, that he said that. Because the second reason is, I think it's one of the most crucial issues facing the world today and facing the church today. I think God gives actual indication in Scripture that it's one of the reasons the world is falling down around us. Uh, it was alluded to in the announcements. I'll actually turn to that scripture here in the introduction. But first, I want to hold up this book. Now, I don't endorse non-church media from the lectern, just so you know. Uh, this book might have something in it that says, let's all put up Christmas trees. And if it does, I don't endorse that. We don't do that. But I do fess up to the parenting that I've done and what I've tried to do. And this is a book that I, I used to read to my kids called Amazing Tales for Making Men Out of Boys. Admittedly, all the girls that I've given uh, begotten were very disappointed in this book. It didn't seem to have much for them, but now I don't have any girls. All I have are four boys. But because I have four boys, this topic, Making Men Out of Boys, was important to me. It has been on my mind. It has weighed down my prayers because I feel responsible for not just four boys, but for future men, and then for future husbands, and for future fathers. And this book, it looks like the cover of a comic book. Uh, it is written for reading, I would say, to, to young people. And yet at the same time, I don't know a man of any age who wouldn't enjoy actually uh, reading some of this, at least if you're a man. And on the back, let me just read just part of the back, because I think it's going to add to what I'm saying today. What is it that captured my attention when I saw it? Well, the back says... Uh, stories of heroism, exploration, and sacrifice that will inspire boys to be courageous, honorable, and open to adventure. Tales of brave and selfless deeds used to be a part of every boy's education. We grew up sharing stories with our fathers, uncles, and grandfathers of how great men had lived their lives, met their challenges, reached their goals, and faced their deaths. Becoming a man was about comradeship and standing by your friends, whatever the circumstances. And it meant that sometimes it was more important to die a hero than live a coward's life. 
And I thought, wow, I got to get this book. You know, I, uh, you know, I, this is, it was just seemed like it was so full of the kind of stories. And I won't go through the list of the kind of stories it has, but they're all true stories. It talks about D-Day in Omaha Beach. Uh, it talks about this Amazing individual, Josiah Harlan and his adventures in Afghanistan, the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, Apollo 13. It's just uh, just full of those kinds of stories. In contrast, we see, frankly, uh, I think prophecy being fulfilled. If you turn to Isaiah chapter three. Isaiah chapter three and verse twelve. We're told here, as for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who lead you, cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. You know, it's interesting because that is not meant to be an insult against women. Uh, it's not. Some of the most amazing individuals I have known in my life have been women. Uh, there's times when it would be tempting perhaps to allow my wife to have, quote unquote, worn the pants and lead for a while. So maybe I could take a break or maybe because a, a decision was difficult and I, oh, mommy, please make the decision for me. Uh, but that's not the way it's designed to be. And it wouldn't have been good for her either. In fact, one of my favorite quotes, Queen Victoria, of all people, has earned some credibility, I hope with us, as an amazing monarch. Queen Victoria, a woman, uh, was one of the most, still is one of the most honored and treasured of British monarchs. But the things she has to say uh, that reflect, that remind me of this verse are amazing. I'm just going to read one that I grabbed. She had written to uh, Leopold I, king of the Belgians. And she wrote, I am every day more convinced that we women, if we are to be good women, feminine and amiable and domestic, are not fitted to reign. She wasn't saying that they can't. She was saying that it begins to pervert the nature of what a woman is and where her best fulfillment lies. And that's what I see here in Isaiah Chapter 3 and verse 12. It's not meant to be an insult to women. It's meant to indicate the deplorable condition of men in Israel at that time that there was not a man to lead. In fact, look earlier in the chapter. Go up to verses, uh, verse 1. We read, for behold, the eternal, the, sorry, the Lord, the eternal of hosts takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the expert enchanter. Even heathen jobs, he's saying. They're desperate for leadership. Even going to your heathen astrologers and the rest, he says, you're not going to find a man that can do the job. And they get desperate. You read later in the process, he says, you're going to go to some guy and he's going to have clothes on. You're thinking, oh, he actually has clothes. Please be our leader. We just need someone that's not. And the guy's like, oh, look, I don't got clothes at home. I don't think I can do the job. And so what does he say? There's no men. There's no men to do the job. I think we're living increasingly in those days. Dr. Manel has often called it a crisis of leadership. We're running out of men. And frankly, the idea of even being a man is under attack. 
The idea of being a man in terms of what a man is supposed to be is under attack. Oh, you binder gender, uh, no, uh, sorry, gender binary person, you know. Oh, thinking it's just male and female. What's wrong? It's all a sliding scale. That is hogwash. That is a lie from the devil. That is not true. God designed them men and female with a plan and a purpose for each. What we're going to talk about today is going to focus on men. I actually have a message about the design of men and the design of women. So women, your day will come. You know, anyway, we might talk about that later. But let me just say, because we're going to focus on men doesn't mean this isn't for everybody. Uh, the fact is, if you are a mother, you may be rearing men. Uh, if you're parents and have a daughter, your daughter is going to marry a man. Uh, men blossom in a culture that recognizes what men are supposed to be. And expect those things of them. And encourage them to be those things. So it might seem like it's focused on men. It really is something we all need to understand. I want to challenge you today. And I want to challenge me. As I go over the 436 characteristics of being a man, just kidding. I could never go over all of that. There is so much to this topic, and it is one of those topics that sort of frustrates you just a bit because you realize we could we could study all week on this. We could have a, a, a line of men come up and give increasingly better and better insights. Uh, but today, we're going to focus on four. Four particular characteristics. We can't cover them all. I can't cover humility. Uh, in this we'll focus on that certainly with our fast i can't focus on virtue i hope we take those things for granted uh, there are a lot of details about being a man that we could spend time on but i want to focus on four particular characteristics if anything certainly among them four characteristics that seem to be under attack in one way or another in our country and in our culture the title of the sermon today is Quit Yourselves Like Men. Quit Yourselves Like Men. Now, I know it sounds weird. That's old King James language. Quit, Q-U-I-T. Quit Yourselves Like Men. But I can't help it. That's my favorite phrasing of that particular verse. Uh, and so we'll actually get to that verse a little bit later. But quit yourselves like men. Quit was an old word for meaning conduct yourselves like men. I don't know, just as a man, I feel more challenged when someone says, quit yourself like a man. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that's the title of the sermon. Now, of all the things I cannot cover, let me help you along the way uh, to a lot of other resources. We do provide resources. Uh, one, if you're interested in Living University, I talked with Dr. Scott Winnell, and he has a Christian men class. It is not available this semester. So you cannot act like a man until uh, next year. No, actually, uh, this semester and next semester, it is not available. Uh, but I, I guarantee you, if you're interested, he will write your name down and he will get a hold of you uh, next year. So there is a class on Christian men. We have a number of sermons. Uh, one by Dr. Winnale. It's number 746. It was given in 2013 called The Path to Christian Manhood. Then he has another very similar one in 2008 called Christian Manhood. I enjoyed them both. Uh, he looks a little younger in one of them, uh, but still very nice. They're available on our website at lcg.org. Also, I'm going to refer to it later, so I won't go into it into a lot of detail, but uh, I, I will later. A Dr. Meredith in 2013 on May 25th 
it was, I think it was released to the public October 25th, 2013, gave a sermon on the importance of marriage and family. And even though it was generally, it was a, during a uh, singles weekend here in Charlotte, even though it was to everybody, to me what resonated in that sermon, I've listened to it more than once, it's one of my favorites, is to me it was speaking to young men. Yes, it was speaking to everybody, uh, but in particular, uh, I think that sermon is very pointed for that. And there's a lot of certain other resources. One, one thing my son has done, uh, Jonathan, I confirmed the right one. Uh, Rudyard Kipling has a poem called If. If. It ends about how, you know, you'll be a man, my son, if you do these things. And I know uh, my son Jonathan memorized it. I was thinking of reading it as a part of this sermon and found I couldn't read it and keep my composure. It's one of those kinds of poems for me. So, uh, so I won't, but feel free. Look it up. Uh, I challenge you, men. Look it up. Anyway, it's a very, it's a very good poem. And in fact, if you, if you have it memorized, if you memorize it, I bet my son will give you a dollar. Uh, you know, it's, I won't, but, you know, but he might. He's memorized that one and another one. Uh, from Rudyard Kipling. All right, so I want to go over four characteristics in particular. The first I want to discuss is pretty basic. But when it comes to being a man, men want to work hard and excel. If you get a great deal as a man of comfort and enjoyment and satisfaction out of doing nothing... You are failing. You are failing. Now, some of us have circumstances where we cannot work. Uh, we have been disabled. Uh, age, uh, it's relentless pursuit of us, is beginning to pull us down. And yet, at the same time, you talk to often those men, and that's one of their frustrations, is they want to work more. They want to work harder. And it's frustrating to them. And that's a good thing, frankly, for it to be frustrating for them because it shows they have the fire in them to work and excel like a man wants to do. In fact, I've heard too many times, my father-in-law was an excellent example of this, um, sometimes men frustrate women with their chasing of project after project after project, uh, constantly wanting to do. I remember when my wife and I were, were getting married. She still lived with her, with her family. And it was right before the wedding, one of the most stressful times for a young woman's life. Sometimes you were marrying me. You're really, well, I don't really know. Is this really a good idea or not? But anyway, she was getting ready to marry me. And I don't know if it was the night before or very recently before. What does he decide to do in his pyramid beam house? Yeah, I think I'll rip up all the floor, you know, and, uh, and work on some. What? Well, you know, I think to a certain extent that was his way of dealing uh, with the stress of his first daughter leaving his house as well. I got to do something. I'm going to tear up the house, you know, and so that's what he does. And he just goes to work. It was always one project after another because he had to work. Men are designed to work. Uh, and they, we can be overachievers. One of my favorite tales, maybe you'll think this odd of me, think it's one of my favorite tales is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel. We have a tale of David. When Saul, now frankly, Saul's, King Saul's intentions were not the best. Uh, he was wanting David to be interested in his daughters so he could use his daughters and uh, the need for some kind of dowry or bride price uh, to get him involved with the Philistines so he'll get killed. Uh, because he knows one of the best lures for a man is a woman. And so anyway, uh, he was doing that with David. And in 1 Samuel 18 and verse, let's see. Uh, 25, because David kept saying, I, I'm poor. I don't have anything. What, what would I be able to give? 
for a, a daughter of the king of all things. And so verse 25, Saul said to his advisors, thus you, this is, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 18, verse 25, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now, a lot of guys would think, you have got to be kidding. This is the worst dowry payment in the history uh, of mankind. Uh, and what poor person in the royal court of Saul will be in charge of actually uh, counting for the proper number. But why was he doing it? Because he thought, that is such an absurd number, I'm going to get David killed in this ridiculous quest uh, that he's going to do for my daughter. It says, but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David those words, uh, these words, it pleased David well to become the king. It didn't say it pleased him well to do the job necessarily, but it did please him to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count. It's official. Somebody did count and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And David gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. He had to fulfill his agreement. Uh, we can be overachievers. That's, something, that's just like a man to take something and make it harder than it's supposed to be just because he wants it to be harder, uh, because he wants something to be a challenge, because a man wants to know that he's excelling. I've seen boys do that where they're playing some kind of game and after a while it becomes too easy. So what do they do? They just sit back and enjoy it being easy for the next hour? No, they have to step it up. Let's do it on one leg now. Let's blindfold ourselves. Let's tie our hands. Anything they can do to make it more of a challenge because that's what a man wants is a challenge. He wants to work hard and to know that when he's done, what he looks back on was not easy to achieve. He'd rather fail doing something difficult than succeed doing something easy. It is a part of our makeup. It's a part of our design. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. And as you do, remember, we are designed in our Creator's image. One of the beautiful things about studying the sexes and the differences between man and woman is how each kind, man and woman, in their own unique and beautiful ways reflect their creator. There are ways in which a man stereotypically reflects his creator in ways women simply do not, and vice versa. And it's a wonderful thing to get familiar with. In Genesis chapter 1, we see in the first five words, Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created. The moment you and I get to meet God, the moment we're just standing there and he shows up on the scene in this book, he is doing something. He is at work and he is excelling. In the beginning, God created. When it says letter that he created man, what did it say in Genesis chapter 2? It says that he was to tend and keep the garden. From the moment man was designed, he was designed with work to do. God, may, even before he makes Eve, the Bible tells, he makes man and says, all right, this garden, I need you to tend and keep it up. Boys, when your dad asks you to mow the lawn again because you left that row of grass that didn't get properly cut, just think, wow, 
I'm fulfilling my design. Thank you, Dad, for helping me fulfill my design and tend and keep the backyard. Uh, man wants to work and wants to excel. When you should begin worrying is when you don't care if the job is a good one. When you don't care about that row of grass that you just happened to miss. That's when we're starting to vary from that design. You turn to Proverbs chapter 22, if you will. Proverbs chapter 22, and we're going to look in verse 29. Proverbs 22 and verse 29 at the end of the chapter. God says, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. You know, I know Dr. Meredith to have told many of us uh, at the office, don't go pursuing a title. Don't constantly go around trying to improve, to find something uh, to make your business card look better. Let God worry about things like that and focus on your work. Do what you're supposed to do and do it well. The man who does his work well doesn't have to use office back channels. You know, I've worked in corporate America and I've worked with a lot of wonderful people. I'm grateful for the time I had to be there as a a project manager and as an actuary. Uh, It was a wonderful place to work. But you do see that. You see people, you know, here and there trying to manipulate, trying to find their way up, trying to make the rungs of their ladder perhaps a little closer, a little easier to grasp. As opposed to simply saying, you know what? Excel at your work. If you excel at your work, God says you will stand before kings. You will not stand before unknown men. We see that sometimes in local congregations with people frustrated that they're not ordained or they they haven't been given this position or that position. They used to be in charge of handing out the songbooks. And now they've got to watch while... You know, Mr. So-and-so is in charge and I just get to hand them out at his discretion. I should be in charge of handing out the songbooks. You know what? If you're the best songbook hanger out, uh, hander out or ever, then maybe one day, you know, that position will come open for you. Just focus on doing your job well because that's what's in a man's nature is to want to work hard and excel. It's interesting. Uh, it was a reference in, uh, there's, a, there's a book that Mr. McNair uh, has used in, Marriage seminars here in Charlotte for the uh, Charlotte weekend by, what's the fellow's name? Uh, Emerson Egerix. It's an odd name. You never know if you're saying it right. Really? Emerson Egerix? Is that your name? Uh, but it is, and it's called uh, Love and Respect. Right? Love and Respect? Looking for confirmation. I think it's Love and Respect. I wrote it down. Love and Respect. And in that, he talks about how given a choice, and he did kind of a, a survey of a whole lot of people, given a choice, asking men and women, I'm going to summarize it a bit. If you would rather be respected by everyone, but sort of alone and not really liked, or if you want to be loved and liked by everyone, but not really respected, perhaps, for what you do, if you had only two choices, what would you prefer? And he said, while it wasn't 100%, the divide was obvious. Women want to be cared for. They want others to want to have relationships with them, whereas the men generally chose to be respected. I want to be respected for what I do. I want to be respected for what I can achieve in the world. And that means more to me. That is part of a man's design. A man deeply wants to be respected for what he does and if possible to be the best at what he does. 
There's nothing like that feeling of being the best at what you do, of getting that first place ribbon or getting that trophy, at least for that one moment. Not because your desire was just to beat all the other guys, but to throw yourself up against a challenge and to have excelled. And to have excelled. That's part of a man's design. We live in a society where they're trying to get that out of men's nature. Oh, don't worry, you know, we're all winners. Well, no, that's not true. Uh, We're not all winners. They do that because they don't want anybody to be losers. But if there's no losers, there's no winners, you know. And so that's not the way man works. He just doesn't work that way. He wants to be the best. And even in excelling to be the best, because not everybody can be the best. When we, uh, in the Missouri preteen camp, we used to always have the Missouri preteen camp uh, musical chairs. And I, I used to hate musical chairs as a kid, but I have a particular way of doing musical chairs, which is a little bit different, and all the kids generally have a great time. A uh, few injuries, which is nice. Uh, but anyway, we do musical chairs, and I always... Tell them at the beginning, let's understand, you know, here there's maybe uh, 70, 80 of us. It was getting pretty big. So let's all understand from the beginning, there's only going to be one winner. And it's probably not you, right? It's probably not going to be you. So let's get that straight. Make sure our attitudes are good. You know, I give them something to do if they lose. They imitate Elvis, say thank you very much, run around a circle. Anyway, I try to get them to do that because you need to understand things in perspective. But it wasn't to take away from the person who's excited about winning. And there's some kids that just, I remember winning that, that musical chairs. That was great. It's like, you know, okay, you're 46. I hope you have some other achievements in your life now. Uh, but still, there's something about that. Men want to excel, and that's not bad. We should encourage that. If you have a son who's striving to be the best and frustrated that he's not, help him to deal with that frustration because he won't be the best at everything. And it sounds ridiculous, but I've felt it as a man. It is frustrating sometimes to know you won't be the best at everything. It's like, I don't want to be the best at everything. And you're just not. You're just not. And so part of that is learning to narrow, learning to fixate on his talents and what he can really achieve. But don't discourage that. Don't discourage that. A man wants to excel and he wants to work. And when they're young, they need to be taught to value that. We were very grateful in uh, uh, Cincinnati. It seemed like we had friends that always had work to do, whether it was bailing hay or moving from one place to another. And I was always happy to throw a bunch of boys at whatever that effort was because I wanted them to learn to value work. And I remember uh, that when they're bailing hay, for instance, I'd encourage them to wear long sleeves. I mean, hay will cut you up. That's a lot of stiff grass. No, it's all right. I'm fine. You know, it's going to be hot. All right, that's fine. So what do they do? They come home with arms, you know, cut up from the hands to the shoulders. It's like, oh, look at you. Yeah, it stings. Ow, you know, it's really, it's rough. You're sweating in dirt. Well, you should have worn long sleeves. Yeah, it's all right. You know, they don't mind because they earned all those cuts. They earned that. And I know half you in this room thinks that what is stupid. Isn't that stupid? But the other half kind of goes, yeah, I get that. You know, I get that. I remember working on the bonfire at Texas A&M and cutting down trees and stacking them to, to build this huge bonfire and coming home with these blisters on my hands, uh, having been out spending the entire day with just a bunch of grody, nasty, disgusting other men, uh, dirty and taking the tape off and some of my skin coming off with it. And I'm in pain. And I'm about to go to bed and I'm just thinking, Oh, this was great. What a great day. What a great day this was. Now, I don't enjoy blisters quite so much anymore. Uh, just so you know, I've had that time. I look forward to watching younger men 
do that kind of work. But that is part of our nature. It should be encouraged. And we need more men to feel that way. All right. The second one is related. The second one we're going to bring up, but it's not exactly the same. Men want to be warriors. They want to be warriors and to conquer challenges. And keep in mind the idea that we reflect our creator. And I'll certainly qualify this because I don't want you getting the wrong impression. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. And this is the song of Moses. After Israel has been freed by God. Through amazing signs and wonders. As a picture really of Christ freeing his own bride from sin. And so Israel is marching out of Egypt. And they sing this amazing song after the Red Sea. And in it, there is this line, verse 3, where they're praising God and they say, verse 3, the eternal is a man of war. The eternal, Yahweh or Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, however it's pronounced, is his name. The eternal is a man of war. It says in verse 6, your right hand, O eternal, has become glorious in power, your right hand, O eternal, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Now, I do need to qualify that. Uh, we had an excellent teen Bible study recently. Mr. Siselka conducted and uh, a lot of us jumped in. I know uh, Mr., uh, Dr. Scott Winnale and, and uh, uh, actually even some of the individuals there also, uh, Mr. McNair. We don't serve in the military. We don't kill. We turn the other cheek. If you're a man and you're packing heat to shoot someone to protect yourself, you're in violation of the principles of the living church of God. You trust God to make that call. You trust God to make that call. There's questions you talk with your pastor. It's one thing that's great about being in Charlotte. You go talk to Mr. McNair, you go talk to Mr. Simone. But that is a principle of the living church of God. We do not actively train ourselves to kill other people in our defense. We will not serve in a military. We will not fight for this country like carnal men when our citizenship is in heaven. Now that said, it still does say the eternal here is a man of war because he was fighting Israel's battles for them. It was his desire to protect. It was his desire to free them by conquering those who had them enslaved. And a man longs to be a warrior like that. A man longs to conquer ground. It's part of why it's so important for men to have real challenges. And when we see our, our young men being robust, uh, uh, to not try to shout that down. I remember with our boys, it was difficult rearing boys. Just so you know, I'm, I'm very fond of it. I'm not going to trade them for anything. But, uh, you know, trying to make some of these calls because we'd see them wanting to, uh, uh, to fight. You know, you're a little boy and everything turns into a gun. Uh, you know, you're, you got a stick. It's like, well, this is like a gun. It really doesn't. No, it does. It does. It, you know, it looks like a gun. And, you know, as parents, you've got to work out all that detail. You think after I work so hard, figured out I'm going to tell you everything? No, I'm not. You figure it out yourselves. Uh, we have to work hard for that. However, one thing I did like, I remember, 
the boys we were at, in fact, I think uh, my wife wrote a, a woman-to-woman commentary on this, I think. I, I love this. Where the, uh, the boys we were at my in-law's house, and at the time, they only had one girl cousin. The rest were boys, our four boys and then, then a few others. And while the boys are busy with their imaginary swords kind of fighting off something, we really didn't know what. So what are you doing? Oh, we're protecting Kirsten from the giant lobster because... Uh, with the boys, every unclean food was some evil monster. So anyway, you know, mo- lobsters are unclean, so we've got to protect her. Now she's dancing around, and I don't know, pretending to smell the flowers and all the rest. Meanwhile, they're rah. And you know, and I thought about that. Do I discourage that or encourage it? And I have to admit, I loved it. I loved it because what I saw in my boys then was someone who saw this is what you do. You stand in the way when there is harm potentially coming to a woman. You put yourself in that place. And even though there were these young little ages, it was the beginning. Men want to be that. They, they hear the firemen running into a fire to go save people and to go conquer and to be a warrior. And they long for that. They long to have something like that in them. It was said during 9-11... That it was one of those days that reminded the world that it is losing something when we start taking these things away from men. This desire to, to, to fight against all odds, to overcome incredible odds like a warrior. Because when those buildings were burning and everyone was running away, there were these small groups of men running towards it. And society needs those men. We, in the church of God, need those men who see the danger and put on their sword and grab their buckler and don't run away. They run toward it. It is part of our nature to want to do that. You know, I remember, uh, and I I, I can say this without endorsing the movie because I was trapped on a bus uh, my wife and I were on a long bus ride uh, before we had kids even. And uh, they were playing a movie. And uh, I remember we were driving through Louisiana. It's the first time I'd actually seen Louisiana. My first impression was swamps. And that's about my only impression of Louisiana for quite a number of years. Um, but the other thing I associate with Louisiana, though I have no cause to, is this movie. Because I was there in this bus and they were playing Braveheart, the Mel Gibson movie. I had not seen it in the theaters, uh, but they're playing it on the bus, and we're there with everybody else. There's no other place to go. My wife watched the movie through a pillow. Uh, she put a pillow in front of her face for pretty much, I think, most of the movie. And it's this fictionalized tale, to a great degree, of course, of William Wallace and Scotland, you know, fighting to liberate itself uh, from uh, the rule of, of uh, England and the English king. And it was actually one of the first movies where I'd seen a digital violence so digitally, realistically uh, depicted, as far as I could tell. And, uh, you know, we had to be careful about what enters our mind, you know, because you have to scrub those things out later, and you never can completely scrub. So be careful the bus you're on. But that said, that said, there were things in that movie that I resonated with. 
you know, at the end, well, spoiler alert, he dies at the end. Uh, anyway, when he is executed in a horrible way, they don't show how the execution takes place. But if you read in history, it was atrocious how torturously they would execute people. Uh, and so what does he yell at the end? His final word is supposed to be a plea for mercy, but he yells, freedom, which of course, you know, I'm not going to yell right here like that, but you're like, yeah, you know, that's it. You know, you hold to your convictions. It doesn't make a difference what they do. You know, the warrior still holds no matter the size of the enemy and how they keep coming. And I resonated with that. Remember, we took a bus stop and I got to get a Snickers, but I'm going to eat that Snickers with power and fury, you know, and, you know, it's going to fuel a man. Uh, there were things in that. Again, I'm not recommending the movie because it definitely has elements that, that I, I have to unsee and I can't. But that said, trapped on a bus, those things about the life of that man, the kind of life actually of, of men that showed up in this book that I wanted my children exposed to resonated with part of my design. It's like a tuning fork. You know, you take a tuning fork and strike it and hold it next to a tuning fork at the same frequency and they affect each other. It is not wrong to want to be that. You know, it's interesting if you look at the language. uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 1. You know, this country was built in a lot of ways by warriors. It's one of the reasons we have the adventure camp. I remember Dr. Meredith sending out a note to the ministry uh, or, or he directed Dr. Winnell to. And it was a, it was an article about education and how education generally in the world expects everyone to act in the female role model. And as one researcher put it, I just reread the article in Time Magazine. I wish I'd grabbed the reference. She said part of the challenge of why boys are increasingly failing in schools is because they're defective girls. And the educational system expects them to fit the role of girls. When they're not, they're boys. They're going to fidget. They see a window and they see something exciting like a bug or something. They want to go check it out. If anything, imprison it and show it to their friends. Uh, That's the way they are. But that's not not the model. That's not what we do. Uh, We don't allow boys to be boys. We expect them to essentially be girls. And the schools are failing our boys. And it's removing a certain element of manliness from them. It's part of why we're all about recapturing true values. Because the educational system out there and today is not built on those. It's interesting God's language in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. After making man and woman, it says in verse 28, Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it subdue it. What an interesting choice of words. It doesn't say, you know, fill the earth and and make nice friends with it. But you're to have dominion over this world, he says. Adventure camp, for instance, brings that kind of element into people's lives. I'm glad that, that people of both genders get to go to the adventure camp. But personally, I know the men need it more. Men, it's a wonderful experience from everybody I've heard. One of my favorite tales I keep thinking of is uh, uh, Miss uh, Deborah Ross and the, and the inflated thing and going in the water and going around. Yeah, it's adventure camp, right? There's a reason the word adventure is in adventure camp. But I'm excited about the young men who go because they need it. Uh, recently, Mr. Rod McNair went to the uh, Adirondack canoe trip. 
that his uh, uh, brother, Mr. Jonathan McNair, put in the Northeast. Men need those things because a man's desire to be a warrior, if he doesn't have good and noble things to conquer, he will find other things that aren't as worthy and that aren't right. As part of the reason, there's a lot of different reasons. Part of the reasons why you see these guys that just can't stop playing certain games on the Xbox, uh, Call of Duty and Halo and all the rest. I know some of you guys are thinking, oh, he's talking about me. Uh, but still, I'm talking about these guys that just devote their lives to it. And I feel the appeal of some of that. I'm not denying it. But how you see their life passing them by and then they're 35 and 40 and 45. And congratulations, you're the best 50-year-old video game playing man on the planet. Because these things do fulfill a part of that in this kind of alternative universe that Satan's creating that we're being warned about. Because it makes you feel like you're conquering, you're leveling up and you're taking ground. Sometimes you're talking to your friends over the internet and communicating like a squad and you're doing all of that. But it's not real. At the end, the game is turned off and no ground has actually been conquered. Your career isn't any further ahead. Unless you have a career in playing video games, I guess. I guess there, maybe there's one possible career. We're designed to want to conquer. In fact, it's funny. One of my favorite stories of, uh, of my wife and I rearing our children, because again, four boys, and we were in Missouri and we had a split level house while we were pastoring in Missouri and the boys would be at the bottom of the stairs. You have to do this, uh, you know, up a couple flights of stairs. And, and my wife said, okay, you all need to go upstairs. And the four boys, it doesn't make a difference. It's a race. Boom, 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 boom. No, no, you were ahead first. That's not fair. I was behind. Well, you should have started earlier. Ah, you know, and they're clawing at each other. It's like, ah, she's about to pull her hair out. She says, why? This is a quote. Why does it always have to be a race? Why? Does it always have to be a race? And I remember her saying that in such despair. And all I could answer was, they're boys. They're boys. A boy wants to test his mettle against another boy. Not to defeat him and to crush him. It's an amazing thing to see two boys or young men or older men competing with each other with a right spirit. But iron sharpening iron going against each other. And in the end, when there's a clear winner and they're wiping a bit of the blood off their knees, to see them shake hands and go out someplace and have a beer. Because it wasn't personal. We're just guys. Men want that. They need that. You know, here locally in Charlotte, there's this wonderful uh, ultimate Frisbee thing happens about a couple of times a week that uh, started with the singles and expanded. And a lot of families have got involved, and I love it. And I, I love that that happens, and I love my boys get to be a part of that. But it was concluded after it grew that, that maybe families uh, with small children and such, we need to keep in mind that maybe there will be one day where we all can play more aggressively and harder, and then another day of the week where it's open to all families where we can all kind of watch ourselves a bit because you can mow over a little kid playing ultimate frisbee. And we might say, oh, you know, it can be open for families on both days. And it's like, wait a minute. We want to encourage that. We want to encourage our young men who want to get aggressive and be able to play with each other in a healthy fashion without having to worry. Now, we also want young men that worry about little kids. That's right. But the best fathers are the ones that have learned to grow that aggression in the right way with other men they love and spend time with. And I thought that was a really wise way to balance both of those. Let's spend time together as families. 
Let's let these kids get to enjoy and get to grow with us and get better in their skills. Let's also have that time where, you know, if person A's elbow happens to accidentally ram person B's nose, uh, you know, and it wasn't meant to, they would have to worry that person B was, you know, a six-year-old or something like that. Because we want to be able to encourage these things. A man longs to be first among equals. And if he can't be first, he wants to enjoy the struggle. It reminds me of the verse in 1 Samuel 4, verse 9, from which I take the title of the sermon. 1 Samuel 4, we have the tale. First Samuel 4. Of the ark of God being captured by the Philistines. Because Israel was not going through a really good time right here. And uh, Eli and his sons really weren't the best leadership for Israel. And they're having a hard time against the Philistines. And they get this idea. Hey, let's get the ark. You know, we always win when the ark is there. Boom, it's a trump card. Let's go get the ark of the covenant. They saw the movie, how it fried Nazis and everything. And thought, yeah, let's get the ark of the covenant. It ends up not doing them any good because God didn't honor that. He wanted a different kind of Israelite, not just Israelites that win all of their campaigns. But regardless, when the Philistines heard about it and they heard the ark was being brought into the battle, they got scared. They got scared. And you hear and they recount the tales of Oh, isn't this the gods of Israel that conquered the Egyptians and all the rest? And they are worried. And they essentially have their own little moment like uh, William Wallace does in the movie where he gives a speech. They can take our land, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And they talk to themselves. And that, how do they say is they're trying to bolster their own courage. What do they have to fall back on? Here they're going to, they're going to, they're going to fight. Probably going to die because the Israelites God they think is involved. What do they have to encourage themselves? It says in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 9, they tell themselves, Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. In the old King James, that's where it says, Quit yourselves like men and fight. Here they are possibly facing certain death as far as they knew. And all they could say was, then let's face it like men. Let's fight like a man is supposed to fight. And they actually captured the ark. God now didn't go well for them once they brought it back, tumors and all sorts of things. But still, that phrase just captured me. A man wants to know when he looks back that he has been a warrior. That when faced with things, he's quitted himself like men. And I know it's going to sound ridiculous. But again, trying to find healthy avenues for these things. I remember when I was an actuary, I had to develop an asset share program. It was a big program. It was going to impact all of us where we were. Uh, it was going to impact actually our Baltimore office because they had just bought us uh, and they wanted to uh, adopt it. And it was a lot of programming. I had to do a lot of coding for that. And I was determined to come through and I stayed up and I put off sleep just writing there, my eyes beginning to bug out, uh, working with Visual Basic and other stuff to write this asset share program that you could take a, an imaginary insurance product and try to figure out, well, you know, how much will it pay? What's the profit for it? What, is a, a, how is a, what kind of sales do you need for that to work? 
And I know it sounds ridiculous, and make fun of me if you like, I've had worse, but I felt like a warrior. I mean, there was a challenge, and it had been determined if anyone's going to do it in this office, it's going to be Wallace Smith. And we need him to come through and do it. And it was a challenge, and I, it was something that had never been done before, and I wanted to conquer. I wanted to win. I wanted to hold that computer screen up and say, Arg, you know, or something, you know, look what I would have done. Uh, it's not that we all have to go out in, in the woods and wear bearskin and beat drums like a bunch of weirdos. But men do want to see challenges and look back and say, I conquered that. And the world is giving us more challenges. If we don't think the things happening today in this world aren't going to personally and directly impact the work, and our children, our sons and daughters, and our wives, then we are not paying attention. Then we are not paying attention. And not every warrior ends his battle uh, with blood you know, coming out of his, his knuckles and all the rest. Uh, I remember seeing uh, a man just take verbal abuse screamed in his face by someone who was not worthy to be doing that. It had to do with political correctness and colleges and all the rest. Uh, and it was just an amazing clip to see that person and to see in an instance where any man would have taken this person who happened to be a young woman uh, and just said, well, who do you think you are? You know, she just kind of punched this young woman in the face. But she was bold and she knew she was in an environment where she could scream and yell anything she wanted, any obscenity she wanted in that man's face. And the culture would support her and applaud her. And I saw him stand there and take it, but keep his composure and continue stressing the truth to her. He was a warrior. He was a warrior. We have to be in tune to the design God has put in us because bad things are coming. We know they are. We have just had taste. We haven't even had the appetizer. We've had a chance to see it on the menu. Dr. Meredith has warned us. Mr. Ames warns us. They warn us these things are coming. And the church of God is going to need men who are ready to assemble and however metaphorically, to fight and to win. And that is part of our design. All right, the next item that I would like to discuss of the four, this is going to be shocking, shocking, I tell you, when it comes to men, characteristics of men. I know you'll be surprised. Men want a woman. I know, startling, isn't it? You know, it's amazing. Men want a woman and then a family. You know, family's nice. You know, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes so-and-so with a baby carriage. You know, family comes as well, but it starts with wanting a woman. Most guys don't say, man, I am just in the mood to change diapers. I really wish I had a woman to, to you know, have some babies with so I could change diapers. Uh, that's not normally the order in which that goes. Men want a woman. I was uh, talking with a young man uh, recently, and we were discussing this very thing uh, because I was 
I, was, I just really wanted his opinion. I'd been getting actually a lot of opinions that I hadn't asked for, but they were all building to some similar pictures. So I was talking with him about dating and marrying, uh, about the fact that, you know, Dr. Mary's going to start force-feeding wheat germ if he has to, uh, you know, to some people here and there. And he said a number of things that were really chiming with what I was heard hearing from some others. Uh, for instance, in particular, he suggested that, though he didn't really know why, that there was this nagging sense that it's somehow selfish to want a woman in his life. Like somehow, you know, his thoughts need to be higher and not, not actually wanting that. That is not true. That is not true. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, he meant that it's not good for man to be alone. And for man to want that not to be the case is not a bad thing. Uh, it's a sign of health. It's a sign of robustness and vigor. It makes a difference what we do with that desire, but it's not a bad thing. Actually, turn to Proverbs chapter 30. I love this passage on this topic. Proverbs chapter 30. You know, we can talk about the different loves in the, in the Bible. You know, Philadelphia kind of love. Uh, phileo. And we can talk about agape. And we can talk about eros. And sometimes if we're not careful, we talk about those like agape is the only right kind of love. So when you see your wife, you should only be filled with agape somehow for her. I can't wait for my next opportunity to sacrifice for this woman. You know, when the fact is God made them all. He made Eros as well. He made romantic attraction. Otherwise, we would have died out a long time ago because family's hard and kids are hard. But thankfully, girls are pretty. Uh, and so the species does continue. And God designed it that way. And I love this passage because it's, it's one of these beautiful poetic passages, the way that uh, in the Hebrew a verse, the way they would structure it. It's designed to lend a powerful emphasis to the last item. And in uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 18, Proverbs 30 and verse 18 says, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. A young woman, a young unmarried woman. I think the old King James says a man with a maid. He says, you see that, that God designed. It's just too wonderful for me. He says, it's amazing that interaction that God has put together, uh, that spark. God is responsible for the existence of romantic attraction. It is not in and of itself an evil. It is not. It is like so many things. You can do good with it or you can do evil with it. And then there's subcategories of there. Not every unwise thing is evil. Uh, not everything that's carnally wise is uh, actually good. It's something that is good or evil in the using of it and what we do with it. 
You know, actually, because this sort of came up, if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 as well, I love this particular verse for different reasons. I remember the first time I heard about it, it was actually at a, one of our camps some, some time ago, a teen camp, I think, in one of the Christian living classes. It was highlighted there, and I have used it for this sense many times in my own messages. One of the best things about being a minister is getting to steal from other ministers. Um, the idea that God has given us the family as a world in microcosm. A world in microcosm. So that we can learn how to relate with the rest of the world. Uh, and in this particular passage, 1 Timothy and chapter 5, we see in verse 1, starting in verse 1. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. And God does give us the family. Your sister should teach you about how to deal with other women. Uh, this is an instruction to a pastor who is having to exhort people of different levels of society and different uh, relationships. And he's trying to say, you know, your family's been given you to learn. How do you deal with your father? Well, that's how you deal with older men. Sometimes as a pastor, you have to correct them. But be mindful. It'd be like correcting a father. Sometimes it has to go in difficult directions, but it shouldn't be by default. But that said... It does say these are how you exhort others. It's talking about how you interact in some ways. But one day, you're going to marry a woman who isn't going to seem like your sister. Uh, it is not trying to say that just because you have a sister, that you should look at every woman in the world as your sister. Because i got to be honest, I love, I have two sisters, I would not marry either one of them. They're my sisters, right? That's just the way it is. I love them. They're like friends. Uh, but I wouldn't want to marry them. Oh, poor guy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love my sisters. and I love their husbands and they have great families. But, you know, that, that's different. And as much as I, I think of other women as my sisters, and I thought of my wife before she was my wife as my Christian sister, at the same time, there came a time when I thought, well, she's not my sister, is she? You know, uh, when you realize that this female does exist in a different category. She is actually of the marrying kind. Uh, she is available. She is on the list. Uh, Paul wasn't trying to say this, that somehow we think of everybody in the universe in some kind of platonic realm where it's wrong to consider, well, what would it be like to be married to this person? You know, what kind of family? Could this person and I actually build and make together? God loves romantic attraction managed rightly. Managed rightly. Uh, actually, uh, there's a great piece of advice in Proverbs 24 that we do have to understand well. Proverbs 24. I've used this one a lot as well. Proverbs 24. It says in verse 27 of Proverbs 24, Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field and afterward build your house. Mr. Seselka put it really well in his Bible study at the beginning of the brick weekend that we had not too long ago. Uh, he was giving a list about Christian men and being Christian single men. He points out that uh, he said it is good and right for a single Christian man to pursue a single Christian woman, not stalk gentlemen, uh, to pursue. 
to pursue. But he also said at the same time, you better have a plan. Because that woman is going to have a father who's expecting the man pursuing her to have a plan. Actually, I thought it was just really well the way he put it. Uh, there's all these different paths to being able to take care of someone. There's an academic path. That's what I pursued with a math degree. But I know not all of you can major in mathematics because there's only so many spots and that makes you sad. And so there's other things, you know, to learn to, to support a family with. There's vocational programs. You know, it's kind of funny when you, you see a lot of white-collar workers like me in a neighborhood, uh, maybe a lot of them say earning, earning more than I do, and the guy that comes to work on their electricity and all the rest makes more than every single person on the block because he may have decided, you know, i got a skill at this. I can get certified in this. I can feed a family. I can take care of a family. There are all these different paths. I think the way Mr. Soselka put it was, maybe you want to be a professional wrestler. That's fun, but you better have a plan, you know. I mean, make sure you know how to do that in a godly way and can actually take care of a family. And that's part of what this is saying. Don't put the cart before the horse. But at the same time, do understand what it's saying. I know uh, Dr. Meredith put it in that uh, sermon, the importance of marriage and family. He says, don't think you have to have $50,000 in the bank before you get married to someone. There's a joy to building that life together. In fact, if you look at the words involved, they communicate that. For instance... In verse 27 there, verse 27 it says, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field. It doesn't mean the field is all ready to be harvested and is already growing crops. Make it fit is the Hebrew word, a thod, a thod. It means to make it ready to prepare it, to prepare it. Frankly, what a man wanted was not only a field to work, but a woman to work alongside him in that field. It was to prepare it. It doesn't mean it already has to be in the works. In fact, uh, the only uh, place in the Bible where I know this word is used, you might hold your place there, is in Job 15. Job 15. Job 15, just break it into a, a verse to grab the meaning of the word. It says in Job 15, verse 28, he dwells in desolate cities and houses which no one inhabits, which are destined, or the old King James says, ready to become ruins. They're not ruins yet, but they're ready. They're ready for that destiny. And the word there is the same, athad. Make your work fit in the field. Are you going to be able, do you have a plan to feed a family? Do you know what you're going to do? Are you getting married and thinking, well, you know, I love you and you love me and everything else is just going to work out. I don't have a job and uh, I don't even know what I want to do. I just know you're awful purdy. Uh, you know, that's not enough. A man sees that and says, and then I'm going to work for that because the other half of this verse really emphasizes something in a way that sometimes we can miss and it includes a communication. It says, prepare your outside work and make it fit for yourself in the field and afterward build your house. Why is that warning necessary? When God gives warning, it's because there's a need for the warning. And the warning is because this, I know you want a house. Maybe you've even found the one. Maybe you've already got names for your kids in the future. That's great. Use it to motivate you and get that field ready. You know, maybe you want to get it done faster than that's fine. Do what you're supposed to do. Because it's right to want a woman to work alongside us. You know, it's interesting when God said things about the world, as he was making the world in Genesis chapter 1, and we read more in Genesis chapter 2. He makes something says, oh, that's good. 
Oh, that's good. Oh, I made the waters. Man, those are good. Look at this. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your work if it's good work. Again, a man wants to work and excel. And God was excelling. And the world looked fantastic. He said, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. There's only one time he said, this isn't good. It's when he made man. And man had his work ahead of him, but didn't have woman. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so he complimented him with a help meet for him. Then what did he say? He didn't just say it's good. You read the end of Genesis chapter 1. He says, now this is very good. It's not wrong to have that motivation, but we have to do the right things with it. Even Christ in the church, we sang it in a hymn a little while ago. What did Christ say in the song that we sang together? Right? What does he say to us in the scripture? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. But notice, when does the work to the world really start? After we're married. Now, he did do preliminary work. He did what he needed to to set that up. But what does he look forward to? Why is he preparing? What is driving Jesus Christ to spend the millennium working with you, his bride? That's what he wants. It drived him. It motivated him. Don't take my word for it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Why did Jesus Christ do everything he did? What stirred him? What motivated him? What was the goal at the end of the tunnel? Jesus Christ, it's not that he was God first and after all this he would turn into super God somehow. Some kind of better and more powerful version of God. We know quite the opposite. We know that he said, return me to the glory I had with you before the world was. He was returned to a state of glory. Rather, we see in Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 2, talking about our efforts and our inspiration, it says in verse 2 of chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, our future husband, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand throne of God. What joy was that? If it was the joy of being in glory with God, he could have stayed. He could have stayed. His bride was the glory that he sought. His bride was the joy that he looked forward to bringing into his and his father's family. In that sense, that kind of romantic attraction handled properly is a wonderful and beautiful picture of that, as the scriptures tell us. Uh, actually, in his um, sermon, Dr. Meredith spends a lot of time on this particular topic. I took the time to write these quotes down uh, because they punched me around a little bit. Uh, and I thought they were good quotes for this particular aspect of the message. Uh, the, the sermon, again, is The Importance of Marriage and Family. You can find it at lcg.org. And he said, some of you tend to wait around and you're afraid of marriage. I don't know what you're afraid of, but you're afraid of marriage and afraid perhaps to make that commitment. He says, often, brethren, you'll have a happier marriage if you marry when you have to work together to save enough money to get a home. Start in a little rented apartment at first, maybe a furnished apartment. Some young people don't even have a bed. I've known some incredibly happy couples, deliriously happy, and they didn't have a bed. They had a mattress they could throw on the floor because they were just starting out together. But you know, 30 years from now, they will look back at that start with that mattress, and it will be a glory and an honor to them 
about how far they've come. So that's me uh, adding to that. So I continue with Dr. Merritt. He says, some young people don't have anything when they start out. They could get a furnished apartment, a small one-room apartment, start small and build. If you wait until you can have everything at once, which all kinds of young people seem to think they have to have today, you might wait forever. You don't need everything at once. You don't have to have a house that's half paid off already. What if you did work hard to buy a house and you're ready? It's like, I can't wait to move a woman into this. And you'll find her bringing she's like, uh, well, it's okay. Ah, what am I going to do? You know, I've got to have a mortgage left and all the rest. Now, at the same time, you're the man. It's like, well, sorry, honey, learn to make it better. Uh, and then she can, you know, we go, I'm not trying to iron out a lot of details for you. What I'm trying to say there's something to be said for building a life together. Uh, one more passage from uh, his sermon. He says, you work together, you build a business, you can later build a family. Think of it that way. We're a team. How can we help each other, encourage each other to build a better life together and go through the trials and tests, having a companion, a loving companion, and build a family and have children, perhaps later grandchildren? Yes, we talk about the end of the world. And being old, he says, I hope the end of the world will come soon, but God has never obliged me on that yet. Uh, I appreciated that, and I've actually heard here and there and I don't even, I'm not saying it's here necessarily. I've just heard you're in the church and you hear things that sometimes there's young people talking about, well, you know, the end is getting so close. Maybe we really shouldn't get married. Uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, have children. I agree. The world is a difficult place. But it's nothing yet to supersede God's desire to have godly offspring and to see godly families. Uh, and he continues in the sermon about that. He says, in the meantime, we're not in the, quote, present distress that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where he was encouraging men to, to actually kind of keep their distance and not get married at this time if they didn't have to. Because they were going through very a lot of difficulties and intense persecution with animals and the rest. He says... Uh, Dr. Meredith continues, there's no present distress. We don't have that. So it's probably better for the vast majority of you to think about marriage. You may have another three to six or 12 or 15 years. Build your life. We can't set dates. Have someone you love to share the trials with, the tests with, as well as the good times with. Someone who is your companion. There's nothing that motivates like that. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was in difficult time. He's building the walls of Jerusalem. And the enemies of Jerusalem are gathering. They don't want the wall of Jerusalem built. They want to see it destroyed. They want to see the Israelites die. And they were working a plan to make exactly that happen. And you see Nehemiah talking with them, trying to motivate them. Uh, stirring up guards to be at the low places in the wall. Men who would make a wall where there was not one yet. He talks about building the wall, verse 6. So we built the wall, uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 6. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Uh, but still, then he talks about the enemies of Israel conspiring together to destroy them. It says in verse 11, our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And he knew about that. God made sure he knew about the plans. So when he's trying to stir the men to make a difference, to bring out the warrior in them, what does he say? Verse 13. 
What does he say? He says, therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, sorry, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. Nothing motivates like that woman and that children, those children that you have. Nothing stirs in quite the same way. You know, a man's desire is to come through for others. No one fantasizes if they're a football player of making just a common play like everybody else. They fantasize about it being the game that everything depends on. And the team is counting on you. And the stands are looking at you. And as the ball is in the air going to you, the clock runs out. Because as men, we like to make it harder than it needs to be. And the clock runs out. And you're in the end zone. And the people are clamoring at you. And your hands are reaching up. And you fantasize about catching it, not dropping it. Because you want to come through for others. That is a part of a man's design. You know, this is going to sound silly. I'm not endorsing playing a lot of video games, but I played my share when I was young and in college. There was one in particular I really liked in the, uh, the MSC at Texas A&M. It was a really, you wouldn't even believe it's a video game these days, kids. You'd think it was like sticks and stones. But anyway, back then you put a quarter in a machine, believe it or not. And anyway, you'd play this game. And uh, it was a particular game, and I would play it, my roommate there. And I, I was pretty good at it. And so I'd get my name. Back then, if you... Anyway, you got to succeed on a game. You could put your initials, like the top score. So I could put WGS, you know, right there at the top. But I had come to a point in my relationship with my future wife that I didn't put WGS. I'd get the top score, and I'd put JRR. Oh, I know it's really stupid, right? I didn't slay a dragon or anything. But it's that one little thing because a knight doesn't just want to slay a dragon. He wants to slay a dragon for his lady. It's still a privilege <clears throat> to get to slay dragons for her. The video games were easier, frankly. Uh, you know, they do get harder, right? The beasts get tougher and fiercer and their teeth get sharper. But it's a privilege. And it's part of being a man. And it's what a man wants. It's what a man wants. Finally, we don't have a lot of time for this one, and we could spend a lot of time, but it's the capstone of everything else. Nothing will work unless we do this. Real men are active, and they reject passivity. It's not just enough to say active these days, because active can mean a whole lot of things. We have to examine ourselves for where we are passive. Where are we passive? Because this world is trying its best to breed a bunch of passive men. When men have always been meant to be the active force in society. One of my favorite passages about this one. It's kind of fun to bring out your string of favorite passages on a topic. Is in Ruth. You'll turn to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. And we've no time to actually cut up, catch up on the entire story of Ruth. That would be. That would be fun. But in Ruth, 
chapter 3, we have that Ruth has approached Boaz and essentially said, I'd like you to marry me and save me and my, my mother-in-law. Uh, and he's appreciative. You know, he was getting up there. He was an experienced, mature man. And here's this young woman who's come to him and said, we'd essentially, we're at your mercy. Uh, and he's like, well, this is a good deal, right? So anyway, uh, he's pleased. He knows she's a virtuous woman. He had seen her working in the fields. But when Ruth comes and tells Naomi, we see this in uh, verse 17. She starts off, Ruth is telling her, her mother-in-law how, how all this has gone. And she said, well, the, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And Naomi knows the score. She knows how men and women work, and she knows what's going on. In verse 18, she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. He was not going to let this opportunity go by. Because there was another kinsman that was closer who had the right. Uh, and he didn't just sit chewing his nails and wondering, oh, I, I don't want to mess this up. What am I going to do? And then a month later, the other kinsman's got her. He wasn't going to rest. Here was a beautiful woman. Uh, that expressed an interest. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to seal this deal fast. He's a man of action. The world doesn't like men of action anymore. They want passive men that will sit and watch the rest go by. And that's not what God is looking for. It's not what God wants from us. Let's conclude with one more verse. Ezekiel chapter 22. It's often read, I want us to think about it, Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. God says in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall, speaking of Israel, and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. What does that mean, even? You know, I'm a Texan. I can't help but think of the Alamo. And I'm not saying it happened just like this, but I have this tale in my head. We have the defenders of the Alamo against the army coming in, and they're hiding in their positions at various places along the wall, trying to stop the army, and they've got this defensive wall that is helping. But then you hear a cannon go off, and the men turn, and now there is a gap. There's a gap in the wall, perhaps to your left. What happens when there's a gap in the defenses? Then the enemy's focus turns to that gap. Because they think, we've got them. We've got them. And it becomes the enemy's desire, their passionate desire, to flood through that gap. Because there's a place where there is no longer a wall. And God says, I look for a man willing to stand in that gap and make a wall. What does that mean to make the wall? I mean, think about it. For the man who abandoned his other post, realizing this is more important, and stood in that gap with his rifle or sword or whatever it may be, he is literally facing the entirety of the force of the enemy army because that's where all of them is fo- are focused. It's, it's like a suicide mission. It's like a death trap. But God said, I'm looking for one who's willing to fill that spot. Just give me one to stand in the place. The world needs such people.
The church needs such people. Those people are called men.